So today we have a very exciting development for Something Who. After releasing the last podcast episode about Mission to the Unknown, we were contacted by none other than the driving force behind the University of Central Lancashire's creation, Andrew Ireland. And even better than that, Andrew agreed to talk to us about the project and answer a few questions and perhaps go some way towards that much longer making all feature that Jack was craving. Hello, Andrew. Hi, my pleasure. So uh, so it's great to have you on here. I mean, first, I think we must apologise profusely for failing to name check you correctly on our podcast, where, you know, half of us didn't know what your name was and the other half uh, got it wrong. So, yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. It's no problem at all. But it's but it's it's great to have you on. So, well, I mean, as you heard, we, we were all really excited to see the recreation that you, that you made of Mission to the Unknown, which, which was um, uh, you know, a fantastic tribute, I guess, to the original. So, but I'm interested to know what it was that that, that kicked it all off. I mean, I, I guess you must be a fan of some standing. Oh yes, I mean, I'm, I've always been a fan of Doctor Who, and it's kind of always been there in my peripheral vision, if you like, as I've gone through my career. I mean, I went to university at a time when, in 1993, when there wasn't any Doctor Who on right. TV. Yeah. And uh, it was always my dream to work on the show. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to direct drama in mm. the BBC. And that was purely driven by reading Doctor Who magazine for a long, long time, which fueled my interest in how TV was made. And so uh, I went to university. I studied media production um, uh-huh. and then I graduated and I worked for ITV for a while and then I kind of you know did a slightly sideways move into higher education and during that time Doctor Who came back yes uh, yeah and in fact someone I taught when I was at Bournemouth University went on to direct one of the episodes uh, Richard Senior his name was who directed uh, Let's Kill Hitler oh fantastic um, so I was very envious of him at that point always remember but I've always looked for opportunities to uh, do do things at work which relate to the creative industries and TV production, which is my sort of my key sort of anchor and subject and the thing that I really love. And in the middle of all that is Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So um, my PhD was a, a recreation experiment of its own, um, remaking half of Tooth and Claw from oh, 2006. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I made that within a simulation of the 1960s production environment to <laughs> test the whole, you know, people always say the studio bound era of the 1960s is, is a really sort of negative and constraining thing, but I was trying to demonstrate in those days Doctor mm. Who told much bigger, broader, more expansive stories than they managed these days with all the technology advances and, the, you know, shooting on location, all those things sort of limit storytelling. Mm. So... Um, I was keen to explore that in a very practical way by doing some production work. And that, in a way, led on to the idea of using that that same kind of simulation of a 1960s production environment. It was like a natural next step. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's probably another podcast in in a discussion of of how modern techniques maybe, you know, get in the way of storytelling. But uh, that's that's, that's fascinating. So... Mission to the Unknown. I, I suppose that you, you've picked that because it's it's easier to recreate without having any of the well-known actors in it. Yeah, I guess that sort of dodges that minefield in terms of a pilot. I, I wanted to look at it as a pilot. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. See how well it sort of lands with the BBC and with audiences, uh, the fans. I always wanted to see if it 
could be something which would, you know, set the scene for us doing more. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fascinated by, you know, the missing episodes are fascinating. Yeah. They're little gems which are sort of missing, and occasionally one comes back. And I always remember when Tomb of the Cybermen came back, and it was yeah. amazing. And Web of Fear, more recently, was, again, amazing. And But, you know, rather cruelly, these things are missing from the archives, and anything we can do to kind of breathe new life into them is really good and the animations do that yes but while i always appreciated the animations for what they were mm-hmm. the fact that they used the original soundtracks which obviously is a big bonus because like 50 percent of, of their recreation is the actual episode itself the soundtrack yeah because the animators they kind of lack the sort of authentic recreation of what the original set out to do yeah because they weren't written to be animated they're written to be performed by actors on in a set and so uh, i just think exploring different techniques to bring bring these things back to life helps sort of point us to new directions for the future to see what's possible yes yes i mean we, we had the discussion uh, when jack was on she, i was asking her the question you know can we learn more about the missing episodes uh, by you know, through the recreations and she was um, remarking about the the moving of the head of one of the alien delegates as you know, <laughs> yes. you're creating in her thought you know maybe how did that move on set yeah so central nodding his head wasn't yeah, it? yeah it was that's right and, and i think it's interesting that 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 it does it does then pose some some questions that we might not have thought of otherwise well uh, yeah it does and i've always thought i mean going back to my phd stepping into the shoes of a director in the, in that production environment with the script, interpreting it with your actors and your cameras and working out how to bring it to life in front of you, you know, if you're recreating that experience of making it in that environment, then you are in a way going through the same decision-making process that they went through um, yeah. all those decades ago. And therefore, you're going to invariably end up with a, an authentic product. I mean, one of the things in Mission to the Unknown that I always remember is, you know, there's a sequence where, poor old Larry somehow stumbles into a Varga plant. Oh, yes, and yes. Pricked. And, uh, you know, when you're actually standing there in the set with the actor and you've got these big white Varga creatures, which are massive, like seven feet tall, Yeah. Um, you think, well, how on earth do you sort of stumble and <laughs> yeah. whoops, trip into one, really? How do you actually do that? And So we, we tried, first of all, sticking some of the varga thorns onto a bit of our other green foliage mm-hmm. like they'd sort of been rubbed off or something yeah. and he just put his hand out but it's not very clear if you're filming that mm. what you're actually shooting you know in black and white you know what what is this black thorn in a black forest you know on a yes. black twig sort of thing <laughs> yeah you know so we created this whole and i quite like this there's an extra layer of drama mm. we created this scenario where Mark Corey sort of says, "Come on, let's go," and he kind of moves to 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 run out of frame and sort of um, pushes Lowry unwittingly yeah. forward. He's just sitting on his haunches and he kind of loses balance, puts his hand out to stop himself, and that's how he gets stuck on the Varga mm. plants. And I like that because, in a way, yeah, Marco sort of caused Larry's downfall unwittingly, unknowingly. Um, but that sort of extra layer of sort of conflict and drama sort of brought something else to it. And you wouldn't sort of somehow get that unless you're in that space, in that studio um, with the actors trying to work out how to bring that script to life. 
Sure. Yeah. No, that was a that was a lovely touch, and it, it did help to, as you say, it, it it explained it in a way that that was believable rather than a, 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 in a pratfall or something which which wouldn't have really been credible. Yeah. Yeah, but in the same way, I mean, you, you, you're, you're making these conscious decision, decisions to do things which you know are probably not, that's probably not how it actually happened in the original. So mm. you're constantly trying to make it authentic mm. and, you know, recreate the original. But you're, and you're using the same source script and you're trying to think about, you know, the decision-making process of how to make it come alive for the cameras. But in occasionally you sort of know that you are moving away from that authentic moment and you try to always bring it back as much as you can to be mm. as authentic as possible but that sort of push and pull is well yeah is part of the process i think and it was, it was yeah fascinating yeah and i think so i mean we we, we discussed that as well on, on our previous episode you know, yeah. the idea of you know how how much can it be just a mechanical recreation where you know everything is driven by trying to make it as faithful as possible and how much is it a performance of of, of the actors and, and and i guess everyone and i think i, I think you've, you've you've got a good mix there of of, of allowing the creative instincts or, or, or the performances of, of the various contributors to you know to, to have a chance as well as trying to be faithful to original it's it's a good balance i think yeah and that balance we're always trying trying to achieve you know, so there's things which get in the way, like the logistics. Hmm. You know, the size of our studio was pretty small, so you're trying to, you're trying to sort of really sort of sweat the assets you've got and make them hmm. work. We only had two blue and silver Daleks, one yeah. of which was you know brilliant and very easy to manoeuvre, which is James Burgess's Dalek, which I always called the hero Dalek. Right. The yeah. other one was a pretty difficult very heavy and you couldn't see out of it so it was <laughs> it was very difficult to use that one and we tried our best to make it look like we had more than two daleks yeah by cl- some clever cutting but all those things clever cutting between different shots is moving away from um how they shot those sequences obviously where you did have a multi-camera like a three or four cameras shooting a continuous sequence you know we were stopping a lot more than we would have done because we only had two daleks so you can shoot two daleks and then you have to stop move the two daleks around shoot them with a different camera angle make it look like you got four daleks talking to each other right yes so you're trying to retain the the authentic nature of the end product but sometimes to achieve that you have to cheat the production process and you had maybe three models, was it, in the model section? In the model, let me think about it. So yeah, we. Um, I think we. Do you know what? I think we had the we had the black Dalek, and we had the. I think we had. I think we had two silver and blue Daleks in the right. model sequence. Uh-huh. Um, I could be wrong about that. I can't remember now. Maybe it was three, two or three. Hmm. And yeah, they were the um, you know the one foot high, radio right. control version. We took all the innards out of um and pulled them along on fishing wire mm-hmm. yeah that was quite a good day's filming i have to say it was good fun mm. yeah and, and in the end i guess I, I i twigged it was models but it took a while i mean it certainly what it, it, it didn't sort of scream out oh look they've shifted to models that was, that was well, nice i remember driving to work one day thinking about how we're going to bring this particular set to life because in the middle of it is that huge control panel yeah, you know, which is seven or eight feet tall. It's a massive thing. I couldn't really understand how they, in a sense, 
kept it in the script of the original episode. It's in for like it's half a page or something of the script. Mm. Out of twenty five pages is this scene. Um and it, it requires a whole new set. And I assume they, they made that 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 set because they're going to reuse bits of it in the Dallas Master Plan. Otherwise it would have just been you know a waste of money in a way. They would just mm. have filmed those things within their um delegates uh, meeting room kind of space i would have thought mm. so for us to kind of create a whole new space in the studio and build this whole set was just it would just blow the budget but because there's no sort of human beings in that scene there are only daleks I, I just thought well let's do it as a scale down model set because i knew that in in the 60s they did use a, n- a number of times like model daleks yes as a way you know doing their production so I, I thought this is this is still in line with a solution they would have made in the sixties, mm. toy Daleks to scale. So I think it worked quite well. It helped us cut a few corners uh, and spread the budget a bit further. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm interested to know how you managed to persuade your students to get involved in in rec- recreating something that was, you know, I mean, well before they were born, and maybe even before their parents were born. It, 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 I guess it must have seemed, you know, like ancient history as far as they were concerned. I think they were fascinated, and a lot of them were clearly Doctor Who fans themselves. Right. The main bulk of the production work was in this particular week, um, which is midway through a semester. And mm. it's a week where some universities call it reading week. We call it reflection right. week. Yeah. Where we, it's a pause from normal teaching. But because that pause happens across all the different subjects, it means that you've got all these different groups of students available all at the same time. Uh-huh. So we could essentially ask people if they want to do it as an additional extracurricular project. So the people who came forward from different departments, I, I guess they were all drawn to it. Yeah. because they're either you know, Doctor Who fans or they're sci-fi fans or they saw that this was quite an interesting different sort of project to get involved in so there was, there was no need to persuade anyone uh, we had a lot of people who wanted to be involved mm-hmm. covering all the different departments required and that, yeah, they, they all did a very good job yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah I guess also the research side of things is it's interesting. So because as Jack was pointing out, there's a, there's a handful of photos, there's a camera yeah. script, and there's a soundtrack. But you know, in the end, there's not much else to go on. Yeah. So I um I asked a colleague of mine called Debbie to um, scour the internet and um, pull together all the visual material she could find. Yeah. So she did a very thorough job. She pulled all this stuff together, and then I sat down and looked through it all with another colleague of mine from the university called Paul Stenton who ended up playing Malfa he's an actor uh, right. by trade he's been in Korean for mm. example that, those sorts of things he's also uh, a long time Doctor Who fan and he was able to help us identify which of the visual bits that we'd found from the internet were authentic and genuine which were not like mm-hmm. you know telesnaps for example aren't real telesnaps they're being you know created someone's put them yes. together so we, we were able to sort of filter out the things which weren't authentic and we ended up with yeah a fairly small array of pictures mm-hmm. um but at least we knew that that was a, a really good starting point for us yeah 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 so and, and, and another thing that jack pointed out was that 
sometimes the camera script called for things that we can't see in any of the photos so so again i guess you you have then to decide it was that should that be in the production or not yes i mean the example that springs quickly to mind is is the um the gun that marco has because we couldn't find any images of it so we know it features quite heavily because yeah. used to kill two people, for example. So we had to feature it, but we didn't know what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could have based it on the gun that Sarah Kingdom had in the Dalek Master Plan. But I thought, well, possibly not, because um, he's a secret agent. You know, this is not walking around with the uniform on with a gun. This is him undercover uh-huh. in this story. So we tried to design something a bit different. I looked at the animation, which is obviously out there. Yes. And that had um, a very sort of 60s sci-fi kind of design to it. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we went for something a little bit simpler. I tried to design something which looked like it was part of the same technology that had created the rocket and the the smaller distress rocket, which is a combination of like clear plastic, silver and red. Mm -hmm. And so we created these guns based on that design. So yeah, you just... You work with what you got, and then mm. you try and use that to fill in the gaps as best you can. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, in terms of the actual technology, then of of recording, yeah. you, so so you're you're recreating the the, the multi camera setup that was used in the sixties, and and yeah. you're recording with a, a video effect. I mean, you, I mean, were you actually using video cameras that were like the ones from the from that period, or were you trying to recreate that on more modern kit? What was the the setup? Okay. Well, we were trying to, essentially, we are trying to recreate it in a more modern kit. I mean, yeah. people will talk about, uh, yeah, yeah, user 1960s video cameras. Well, really, you can't <laughs> practically no. do that. No. I mean, no one's going to have you know, a functioning 1960s TV studio powered with the same cameras they had then. Mm. So what we can do is we can treat our cameras like those cameras. Yeah, We can use them in the same way. We can we can assume they've got turret lenses, so we, they haven't got zoom controls. Sure. So we, we won't zoom at all during any shots. We can move the camera physically forward and backwards. Yeah. But we won't zoom. Um, so that's the sort of thing we did. So we went through a lot of training and support with the students' concerns to make sure that they all understood how we could use the cameras and how we wouldn't. Um, so essentially we had three cameras feeding to a, a vision mixer yeah and we would cut live between the different shots uh-huh. yeah in the gallery and we would we'd shoot at a scene at a time and make sure we're happy to move on yeah, yeah. and, and I, I suppose there's, there's there's quite a a number of good sources out there to, to describe how the the multicam yeah. thing worked i mean i can remember for instance watching uh, reading the um, making of doctor who back in the 70s it kind of went very crudely through it but i i suppose and it wouldn't have to be doctor who specific there's, there's some quite good source material to help you with that oh absolutely loads and actually you can watch any existing episode of doctor who from that time and you can work out you know you can understand how they are directing the actors and moving the cameras and when they use a wide shot when you use a close-up hmm. 
this wonderful thing which I love about you know what's called the fourth wall where the yeah. actors look beyond the camera at the kind of the invisible you know budget saving fourth wall to talk yeah. about which they can see but you can't but you can see their face and the drama in their eyes and and so we did a lot of that you may have noticed mm. there's a lot a lot of times Mark Corey will walk forward towards the camera and stand on what we refer to as his mood spots like a little bit <laughs> on the ground to look moodily past the camera yeah um, and that and that way you get a drama and you get a sense of 1960s like kind of aesthetic 1960s quality and also you get a, a bit of depth in the shots you get mark Corey in the foreground you get larry in the background yeah and a hard thing to achieve in a studio is that sense of depth because it's quite small. So that's why you tend to bring someone close to the camera and leave someone else quite far behind. Mm. Um, so all those sorts of tricks, yeah, you can glean all them by watching existing episodes and then plan your camera positions and the actor movements in a scene to kind of give you that scene by scene. Mm. And, I, and I think I, I, I gathered from somewhere, may have been the making of, that... Um, you, you originally recorded it in colour and then processed it to get the black and white look. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's really is basically how our studio setup worked. So we would bring the images into the vision mixer mm -hmm. as non-widescreen, so it's ready in four by three. Yeah. So there's no widescreen version. It's standard definition. It's not high definition. Yeah. Um, because that, that's how the studio was. Yeah. It's now, ironically, it's just been up refurbished so it's now um completely 4k so it's like <laughs> very very top quality yeah pretty cool but when we made this yeah it was standard definition four by three so it's not widescreen yeah but it was recorded in color but we monitored it all and all the all, all the monitoring in the gallery and in terms of lighting and design was for black and white mm -hmm. so it was always designed to be delivered as a black and white finished product Yes, I mean there is a color version, but it's out of in, you know it's interesting, but it works much better in black and mm. white. And, and do you have um, some of that false color going on where you, you're you're sort of using it to represent different colors in the black and white spectrum that than in the absolutely? Color? Yeah, the studio floor is a classic example. So it looks okay in black and white mm -hmm. and we as we as we went through the recording we got better at knowing how to use our foliage to cover up the floor yeah yeah uh, we kind of got better at that as we went along but if you look at the color version well the studio floor is very much a, a non jungle type color <laughs> right so it's more obvious but you mm. know if you can get past that then the rest of it looks all right mm. But because of that, really, and and it was it was made, it was written to be delivered in a in a black and white kind of you know atmospheric feel, and I think hmm. Doctor Who works really well like that, and this kind of yeah. you know dramatic story works well in that. So yeah, there is a color version, and hopefully at some point people can watch with interest the color version of it. Um, hmm. But the black and white one is the definitive one. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about those two stories that came back a few years ago, I mean, you could sort of imagine Enemy of the World in maybe a colour version. It, 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 it's more exterior and, the, and there's some of that going on, whereas The Web of Fear just feels like a black and white story. It feels like it would lose something, perhaps, if it were colour. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always interesting seeing these clips, you know, colorized yeah. as a clip out mm. of interest. But yeah, two minutes sidemen, you know, mm. well, you know, it, it's it's kind of yes, it's a black. It's, it just feels like it should be black and white from that era. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so um, we saw, I think, a, a couple of clips of the rehearsal process in the making of so i'm you know it appears that you're using that same method from the 60s of getting everybody together running through it and then doing the recording rather than the rehearse record thing that they seem to do more in more modern setup yeah absolutely so we took the principles of what we did we didn't ex- we didn't do it exactly the same but we took the principles of what we did before yeah because they'd made rehearse it for like four days let's say and yes. then on the last day on the friday they would go into the studio rehearse it with the camera crew all day and then after tea spend an hour and a quarter sticking the whole thing down to tape mm. now that might be okay if you're working with in the 1960s as it were like you know top class bbc engineers and yeah. camera operators who know exactly what they're doing they can get to the, exactly the right spot in focus the right frame do you know what I mean? But, yeah. You know, we are an educational establishment, so we have to flex it a little bit. So we rehearse on Monday and Tuesday, right? And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we recorded it in chunks. Mm-hmm. So we would then, we so we would rehearse all of it on the Monday and the Tuesday. Yeah. So the actors knew how they were moving in the scenes and where, and I knew where the cameras would be. And mm-hmm. then when we went to the studio, then we would we would just basically rehearse it again so they could understand it and the camera crew can watch it and get a sense of it. Mm. And then we'd record it. So it took, we did finish ahead of schedule. I have to mm. say, I was quite pleased about that. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of hours ahead of schedule on the Friday. And that's notwithstanding setting the fire alarm off and losing time <laughs> for that. Yeah. But yeah, so we did rehearse it in a different environment first in a room, you know, bits of tape on the floor. And then we went to the studio and, and filmed it yes we just took a bit longer to do it hmm. but we still kept it all to the week yeah. so the only thing we did outside of that week was the model shoot which i guess was also authentic because they yes. didn't always do well, that at the same time did they no? exactly exactly yeah yeah and, and another thing that's intriguing is were the actors listening to the soundtrack because some of the not necessarily the performance, but some of the rhythm of the scene seemed quite similar. Yes. And you know what? I mean, very recently, someone on Twitter overlaid the original soundtrack to some of the sequences from our recreation. Yeah. And it matched really well. Mm-hmm. And it just made me really appreciate how the actors had taken to heart the original audio. They listened to it a number of times to really try to recreate that um, 1960s performance, Hmm. you know, the delivery, the pauses, the received pronunciation, you know, the very much the quick English delivery. So, yeah, I think they really did capture the, uh, capture the style of performance that you got from 1960s TV drama. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we said um, last time that, that we felt it, 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 it didn't slip into parody, but it was, uh, and and it felt true to the to the actors themselves. But nonetheless, yes, it was. It, it also felt faithful to the original. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being faithful to to the original was really important to us. I mean, 
I did have the original soundtrack, of course, because that is, you know, freely available. Yeah. And so I did. I I broke it down scene by scene when I was planning it to get a sense of the timings of each scene. So if a scene was supposed to last, you know, one minute thirty, then we would rehearse it and we'd see what our rehearsal time would be, and maybe it's, you know, two minutes or one minute. And yeah. then we'd try to adjust it a little bit to get our timings as mm. close as we could to the original scene length. Yes. Okay. Just just to help us in the edit, mm. keep the same sense of pacing. Sure. And I, I I think in the end you very slightly underran compared to the original, but it was yeah you must have been within seconds I think. Well, the editing process was, in a way hampered more than it ever normally would be because normally when you edit something you're you're just editing it yes. and you're making choices about what to include and pacing and so on but um for this because everyone is very familiar with the the dialogue the pacing the music mm. and so on you have to try to stick to that mm. which makes it quite a nervous process because if you normally if just something doesn't work then you would just trim it out but mm. we couldn't re-trip things out because then we would be deterring from our mission of trying to create the original again. So I laid the original soundtrack in the edit, mm. and then I basically cut on top of it with hours to right. try to keep the same, yeah, the same pacing overall. It is it is probably about ten to fifteen seconds shorter, I think, mm. but that's not bad. And no, I no. always thought anything sort of 30 seconds to a minute either way would probably be okay because there are some things that are different in terms mm. of delivery so yeah we did it we, we stuck as best we could to the original yeah. uh, in terms of duration sure and i think it's an it's amazing to 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 get it so close but i guess also that that must be somewhat reminiscent of the, of the issues that, that the directors of the time faced in trying to get it to hit the 24 and a half minute length or whatever it was that, that they were uh, tasked. To yeah. Do. I mean, that, that must've been really hard to do that. I mean, mm. I mean, yeah. Thinking about it, that's quite a long you know, duration to hit in a, a very short recording time. Mm. And they may have record, broken it down to like four or five different chunks of recording. But even so, to get the overall running time to be consistently around 23 and a half to 24 and a half minutes. Mm. That's a, quite hard. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Brilliant. I, I think, um, Jack would never forgive me if I didn't, um, ask you a little bit about the, um, the delegates and, and some of the costumes. So, I mean, I don't, uh, okay. I, w- I wonder how much of that was created specially for this. I mean, was, was any of it already in people's collections or is it all specially created for your, um, production? Okay, well, we, we've we got, luckily, a fantastic fashion department. Right. Been running for decades. And so they were, luckily, just the right people to work with on this. Mm-hmm. And they spent, you know, hours, days, weeks, you know, working through this creative challenge, which is quite different for them, the staff and the students. You know, here are some designs and some photographs. We need to you know, create working costumes which will mimic as closely as possible these alien delegates. And they it just sent them off on all sorts of different tangents to find creative solutions, bits of foam tubing for Malthus costume, 
for mm-hmm. example, um, all sorts of different techniques and materials, doing some tests along the way, and then creating the four costumes. And, and also they, they, they produced the two Vargas as well we had. Yeah. So I think most of all the pre-production sort of planning time, uh, the biggest amount of work that happened in that time frame was making those costumes and the Vargas. Mm-hmm. But no, nothing was like readily to hand. Mm. It was all manufactured from scratch. Sure. And, and so, so did they attempt to use fabrics that were true to the period or was it more to do with the look on screen? I think it's to do with the look on screen. Cause it's very it's very hard to know what the what different fabrics actually were. Yeah, they were yeah. working with the reference photographs we gave them, um, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then the rest was sort of designed around that. So we did everything we could, I suppose, to make it as authentic as possible using the original materials where we could. Hmm. And and you managed to get Nick Briggs along to do the voice of the Daleks. I, th- I think you had a connection with him already. Uh, yes. Nick Briggs came to visit me and to talk with some students of, of mine when I was at Bournemouth University. Right. And I talked with him about uh, the project, well, the idea for the project back then, that's probably in 2013 or so. Uh-huh. So, yeah, in a way, it's been a long time sort of gestating. Mm. But it, it, to me, it just it just seemed like a really sort of obvious thing to do, really, somehow. It seemed like, you know, if you're going to make any episode, remake any episode, you might as well do this one. Mm. Because of what you said at the beginning, it doesn't have the regular cast in it. Mm. Um, so as a pilot, you can kind of just focus on the other elements about creating something that feels authentic to the time. Mm. Sure. And, and I felt that, that Nick had actually added something... Uh, I mean, if you, if you listen to the soundtrack to, to this episode, the Dalek voices are, are kind of a bit weak and, and they seem maybe to be one of those ones where the modulation isn't quite as high, whereas, uh, you know, Nick certainly brings to it the the voice of the Daleks that you remember in your head, even if that wasn't quite how they were on the screen. Yes, it was. I think, yeah, Nick, Nick worked really hard to kind of get the right balance between, you know, the, the voices as they were then and mm. the temporary voices. I mean, for us, having him involved in the project was really important because he was that real strong sort of professional industrial link into the current world of Doctor Who. And that sort of validated the project mm-hmm. in a way. And the students all sat up and took notice a lot more because it was, we're not making it in a bubble. We've got this link into the contemporary world of Doctor Who. Mm. So that's what he brought. And yeah, he tried to make sure he could straddle this line between 1960s Dalek voices, which, mm. you know, are much slower in their delivery mm. <laughs> and the contemporary Dalek voices. So he kind of struck a good balance between those two things. I mean, mm. it's very difficult recording Dalek voices in the studio because he's there on one side yeah, he speaks into a microphone, which goes through his rig modulator. Yeah, that's got to be piped through into the gallery to be recorded as part of the sound mix of the episode. But also, it's got to at the same time go into loudspeakers in the studio, so the actors can hear the Dalek voices and mm. react to them, but not too loudly. But that amplification in the studio is picked up by the boom microphones. Right. So it's quite hard to get all these different elements right, mm. but it certainly helps to have the Dalek voice operator live in the studio because they are an actor and they are taking yes. part in an ensemble piece. So it works a lot better than 
pre-recording the lines or recording them afterwards. Mm. So I was really pleased we had him there in the shoot doing that. Yeah, I think it. I think it must bring the Dalek to life. I mean, the, the design is quite arresting, but nonetheless, that the, the design plus the voice, I think, uh, so, you know, suddenly you've you, you, you've got something magical. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and seeing the Daleks on the monitor in black and white mm. in the jungle just looked amazing. Mm. I mean, you know, it just looked really good. And I knew then at that moment that you know it, it was probably going to work, or it definitely could work because it just a black and white Dalek in a black and white jungle just looks great. Yeah. 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 Sickling. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's those shots from, I think episode two of the Dalek master plan, which we recorded on film of them, the flamethrower in the jungle or something. That's quite an iconic sixties uh, yeah. Dalek shot. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we can see those shots now in like, in like high definition. Mm. And, and so they look quite modern so it's interesting we talk about what looks like it's what looks old and what looks modern it kind of doesn't quite make sense anymore because we're used to looking at things that are old and thinking what looks really kind of grainy and scratchy yeah but then actually as as our ability to kind of remaster original Mm. um, 1960s content you know improves and you end up with great looking material which easily matches what you can produce today Yes, yes, and and, and if um, uh, some of the the remastered Doctor Who, you start to see things in in the the shots that you that you you couldn't possibly see when they first came out on video or or were shown on um, on the satellite channels back in the nineties. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, so you recreated also that fantastic map that all, all the delegates gather around. Mm. So, so Jack was saying in in the script, there's also podiums or something that they that they stand behind. But um, you know, sensibly, you 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 you, you shot the 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 action around that that map because you know, a it's very very visual, and b it's it's, it's everything that all the photos we've got show them uh, in that pose. Well, yes, and I, I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I some might say immediately say i'm wrong about this i'm not really convinced they actually made those podiums in the end mm. because there may, they may well have been in the script mm. but they're certainly not in those publicity photographs no, no. Um, where they're clearly just gathered around the map and so what do the podiums look like and and what 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 do they bring to it mm. you know not a lot really so you just want to have a, a busy frame really of lots of things happening and so the best thing to do really particularly as the background is black Mm. is you just want to sort of like fill the frame as much as you can so you want them as close to each other and the map as possible which is what we ended up doing really yes yes and i guess also if you're not careful with with the podiums it's it's um political debate or something whereas what you're showing with the map is more a kind of uh, war movie or something like that it's uh, as well as you as you say you're gathering room around it so it's so it feels more dynamic yeah 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 that map was again. That took a long time to make in in, in the pre-production phase. A lot of yes. people worked really hard on you know carving these lines, you know these kind of orbit lines hmm. in, in these wooden surfaces and painting it, you know, very diligently. I mean, it's a it's a piece of art. Looking at that table, that's great. Hmm. Yeah, and it looks fabulous in the uh, in the in the finished product as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
we, we, we heard that you were doing this. We, we got the tweet from Peter Purvis to say he was involved in an exciting project. And then it came out, I think, uh, as you were recording it, what was happening. And then, and we all hoped uh, at some time we'd be able to see it. I believe you had BBC permission to do the creation in the first place. Uh, so how, how did you manage to secure the YouTube release? Was, 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 that, was it hard work getting the clearance to do that? Or was that always in the plan? Okay. Uh, well, yeah, we didn't. We wouldn't have done the project at all without permission from the BBC and yeah. the termination of states. I mean, yeah. for me, that was absolutely, absolutely critical because you know uh, this is not like a little sort of fan project, you know, on the side. You know, this is this is me and colleagues and resources at the university and student learning and so on um, around a particular project. And so we've got to make sure you know that it's a one professional mm-hmm. in everything we do. And part of that is having the permission to do it in the first place. So the first step was to talk to the BBC, who were very happy to support it, and also the Terranation Estate, who were very happy to support it. And really, they're all happy to support it because I said from the very word go that this was an educational project. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about the student experience, part of it, and also graduates and staff working together. But it was not going to be released commercially mm-hmm. by us. And um, it would be for internal use only. We wouldn't release it publicly. Mm-hmm. And they agreed to all that. Yeah. Now, the BBC then suggested that, you know, of, there may be a possibility of, depending how it goes and so on, they may want to look at the possibility in the future of some kind of release in mm-hmm. some way, shape or form. Of course, I sort of jumped on that as well. That would be brilliant. So, but that possibility was always going to be after the end of our project so our project ends with us making it mm-hmm. and delivering it i suppose to the bbc as a as almost like the client i mean that's the end of our project and anything else that happened after that would be you know a wonderful bonus so i kept it very much as a separate thing but because yeah. that possibility was there we made sure that um all the contributors completed not just our uclan contributor release forms they also completed all the paperwork required by the bbc right just because it's much simpler to do that while everyone's there doing it yeah sure um, and to try to get everyone to sign things afterwards mm-hmm. so we left it open for that possibility uh, and then really the, the bbc were the ones who then wanted well they they were impressed by it by what had been produced and they, they wanted to see how they could um, do something with it so it took a bit of time but eventually it was passed to russell minton and uh, luke spillane right. um, the bbc online team who are uh, here overseas like the, um, the youtube channel and so on right and they came up with this plan hmm. which was lovely and great and i, I love the fact it's released on youtube because it means it's just immediately available yes um yes. everywhere to everyone yeah, and I, I think that that experience also of, of everyone getting to see it at the same time was was very special as well. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, I found it absolutely terrifying. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, I've been sort of building up to it for like months, months yeah. and months. Um, yeah. Total secrecy, you know, this whole thing, and and then suddenly, you know, you go from total clampdown to sudden worldwide exposure. Mm. And I came back from work, you know, slightly early that day. And my wife and I sat mm. with a bottle of Prosecco <laughs> with the 
computer you know on on youtube yeah. watching like three thousand people or something live watching this thing and this flurry of live comments flashing past and i diligently tried to sort of write a few comments into this stream but it was very difficult because there's so many of these comments flashing past so quickly but yeah. it was it was crazy it was amazing but it was crazy and mm. you know you feel quite nervous about it because you suddenly feel quite exposed when you create something Yes, and it's suddenly out there, and Doctor Who fans are lovely and brilliant, but they are also, as we know, quite opinionated, and they'll certainly yeah. say they don't like something. And so I was quite anxious about how it would be received and how it would then impact on everyone who was involved in making all of it. Yeah, like the actors on screen who got—they're the ones sort of carrying the whole story. Hmm. But luckily, you know, all the comments have been very supportive. Yes, and I think perhaps you know, with 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 the average fan, I mean, it's uh, it's sometimes well meant, but but there's there's not maybe the filter to say, I wonder how the person who made this is going to feel when I when I make my statement. Mm. So, but uh, but you know, I mean, I, I've 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 seen a lot of of enthusiasm for it, and I, I I can't remember seeing anything that was particularly critical of it. So so yeah, I. I I think it's gone down extremely well, and, and and I think also also great because of because of the circumstances. You know, we haven't had Doctor Who on screen since New Year's Day. I think it's it's dropped yep. into a, um, a situation where people are are sort of hungry to see something new. Well, absolutely, uh, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, Doctor Who fans are hungry at the moment for content, hmm. um, and this is a nice thing to drop in for free you know, from the BBC, which is, which is lovely. And it speaks to me as a fan, you know, I can appreciate it mm. seeing something come to life in a visual way on screen like this. But, you know, we're not the the main BBC Doctor Who production team no. in Cardiff. You know, we are people who have other things that we do, other bits of our jobs and, you know, assignments and so on for the students. So it's a great sort of coming together of a group of people who had um, a lot of enthusiasm and the right sort of professional attitude to do the very best we could. And Peter Purvis helped with that, as did Nick Briggs, mm. Edward D'Souza. It all helped sort of raise the bar mm. uh, and help us achieve what we could. And I wanted to show the BBC what we can achieve mm. because it may paint a future path to how to bring other things to life. Yes. Well, I mean, you've you, you've certainly come to the right place for enthusiasm about missing episodes. I think all of the con- contributors to this podcast are very excited by, I suppose, both the the mystery of the missing episodes, the the the, the nature of of what they were like, and, and and the surviving material, and and indeed the the strange mystery of of how they sometimes pop up from time to time. I think it. I think it gets us on a lots of different levels that particular story, and uh, so yeah, I, I, I think if you know if this is a, another way that we can see them come to light, that that would be fantastic. Yeah, I think so. So you 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 tantalised us with the idea that this could be a pilot. So um, did it did it did it whet your enthusiasm for maybe um, pursuing that a bit further? Yes, I mean um, I very much approached it like it was a bit of a pilot. It wasn't easy. I mean, it's, it's a very complex project to do yeah. when it's not your full-time... I mean, I, you know, I've got um, quite a wide-ranging brief across the university in my room. Mm. So doing this as part of that and bringing along other staff and graduates and students who are also doing other things to mm. focus on this, sort of like help get it to a point where, you know, it's it's something we're 
happy with and you know we can send it off to the bbc as a pilot um mm. you know that took a lot of hard work basically and and a lot of energy mm. but would we do it again well of course we would would i like someone else to do it no <laughs> <laughs> of course i well, like to stick our little flag in the ground here and say yeah well this yeah this is our little space thanks because we've earned it you know yeah. and if we could do something else as a few, as another pilot you know, because mm. the next stage of that sort of pilot approach is doing something which has the regular cast through new actors. Mm. That's another thing which we could do. And it's the BBC, are, I think, are delighted with the reception mm. this has got. So hopefully it, it would lead to something else. Mm. We're all waiting to hear. Yes. I'm trying to think uh, in my head of, of whether there's a there's a four-part story where there are, you, you know, aren't so many sets, and 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 so you wouldn't have a massive amount of creation. Well, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've, uh, you've pondered that yourself on on uh, many occasions. Yeah, there's lots of different next steps you could take. You could just pick one episode. You could you could do a handful of scenes from across a range of different episodes. Yeah. You could pick a whole story. Hmm. The ones that come to mind though are quite long and complex, like yeah. you know, Jonathan Masterplan, Marco Polo, those sorts of things. Yes, golly. Or you make shortened versions of episodes, which I also think is quite interesting as a new way of bringing these things to life. You know, mm. like abridged versions. And I quite like the idea of an abridged version of a Dalek Masterplan, where each episode is maybe seven or eight minutes long. Mm-hmm. So you make twelve of them, but they're shorter. Perfect for like. The YouTube generation, yes, if you like, yes, and yes. you could even work with the original story editor to look at the original scripts and choose how you would create like a seven or eight minute version of them. Hmm. So it's essentially like a one third scale version. I mean, or you could just try to remake the whole of the Dalek Master Plan at the full length, and you could do it. You could create the scenario where you're making one episode a week because that's how they did it originally. Hmm. And really, you could make it in three months because that's what they did in those days. But it would take a lot of logistical planning yes. to create the right environment and infrastructure to do that. Indeed. Um, and you wouldn't but, be doing much else for that year, I'd have thought. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So there's lots of interesting things to think about, about all, the, all of those different options. But they, they all mean that we are dabbling and playing mm. and doing things with that whole Doctor Who universe and those scripts and those missing episodes. And I think it's all valid, just like the animations are. It's all, they're all different. Hmm. They're all different parts of the same universe and they all help us to kind of appreciate, you know, this amazing TV show in new ways. Sure. Well, look, thanks. Thanks for, um, for, for doing this, for, for, for giving of your time. It's, it's been absolutely fascinating and, Greatly sure. appreciate it, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's been it's been fantastic to have you on and, and, and to have the opportunity to have some of our questions answered. Oh, thank you. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's nice talking to you. Um, I love all the stuff. I'm very passionate about it, as you can tell. So, you know, we all have the same interests, which is Doctor Who as a as a as a show, as a product, as part of our lives, and anything we can do to bring the those you know missing slices of cultural heritage back to life. It, it, great yeah yeah absolutely 